I want to thank uh, your lovely community for your hospitality this weekend. I I do get to the the opportunity to do um, these types of things on occasion, and um, I would not uh, not all not all visits are created equal. Um, uh, and I, I would not say it if I didn't mean it. You have a, you have a wonderful congregation. You have a lovely community, and I have felt your uh, your warmth, your hospitality. Um, so thank you so much um, for inviting me to be here. Um, it's been an honor to be with you. Uh, I, obviously, um, I can tell uh, that um, many of you, some of you, were not with us all weekend, and that's okay. Um, hopefully. Uh, hopefully what I have to say this morning uh, will speak to you, even if you haven't been a part of the discussion all along the way. But let me explain uh, what, what very briefly, what, what, what I'm, where we're going here. Uh, we, we're, we're doing a conference, we did a conference on the issue of um, Christians engaging culture, um, uh, the idea of cultural renewal, uh, cultural redemption, and so forth. And originally, the uh, the way that uh, Mark mapped out the weekend was we were going to do three talks on uh, creation's fall, cre- uh, creation's uh, cre- no, 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 the the creation of culture, the fall of culture, and the redemption of culture. And as I got into the first evening. Um, I'm notorious when I speak at, at things like this. I'm notorious for kind of reading where the Lord has us and changing things up. And so I did change things up. And we got a little bit more uh, practical with some stuff this weekend. But I want to return to the theme uh, this morning and cover that creation, fall, redemption motif that is the overarching um, story of Scripture. So basically, I'm going to take what I was going to do uh, for the whole weekend and somehow condense it down into one sermon. Don't be scared by that. Um, I promise we won't be here uh, too long. But let me, let me read three passages of Scripture, um, th- really just three verses, really just three parts of verses. And um, I'm going to go with English and not Serbia, if that's okay with you. Um, so, so one from Genesis, one from Galatians, one from Revelation. And uh, we'll unpack those together this morning. Uh, this is Genesis 3:17, just one phrase from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Galatians 3:13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, as it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And then Revelation 22:3, which we did just here in Serbia, but I'm going to go with English. No longer will there be anything accursed. Let me pray. Lord, would you still every voice except yours? Would you come and meet us by your Spirit? Would you um, open our minds to be teachable to your Word? Would you soften our hearts to be repentant and receptive to your Word? And would you change our volition to obey your Word? All of us, Lord, we submit now to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I do think it's important for us to return to, here at the end of our time together, to return to uh, this greater story of what God is doing, how he outlines it in Scripture, and what God is doing 
in our world. And the reason is, is because anytime you talk about cultural engagement, anytime you talk about uh, the Christian calling to redeem the world, um, in my experience, the greatest stumbling block is a lingering cynicism that all of it is in vain. It makes for a good conference. We've had a good time together talking about these things. But come on, are we really expecting to get anywhere with this? Are we really expecting to believe that injustice will actually be overturned by justice? Are we really expecting to believe that evil will be overturned by righteousness? Are we really expected to believe that Jesus will reign over every square inch when every square inch that we know seems so infected by sin and the fall? I think if we are honest with ourselves, and I'm giving you freedom to be honest this morning, I think if we are honest with ourselves, we view cultural redemption like the Greek mythology Sisyphus. Are you, if you, I don't know if you're familiar with that tale, but according to Greek mythology, Sisyphus was an arrogant and deceitful king, and his punishment from the Greek gods is that he was sentenced to, a, to an eternity to push a boulder up a hill for all eternity, and just as the boulder almost gets to the top, it rolls back down. And so his eternal plight is laboring to get somewhere he will never get. A tortured existence. So though we would not express it, I think in our cynicism, this is what we believe is the essence of the Christian project. Are we really getting anywhere? And when it seems as though we actually do make some form of progress, it is only met by the inevitable regression. That suspicion is crippling. It is paralyzing to everything that we have discussed this weekend. Why try if it's all in vain? So I want to close our time together this morning with a word of assurance. Yes, what you do matters in this world. Yes, we are going somewhere. Yes, the destiny of this world actually is all things new. That's the promise. But here's the challenge. It's not on our timetable. It's not our ways, it's his ways. God's people have always been forced to be patient as a people. A people forced to hold on to promise and wait upon the Lord. But that is really not easy for us. It's never easy for humanity. It's really not easy for us in our Google society. We want results. And we want them now. But redemption does not work that way. Redemption requires patience. A patience that we struggle to find. We are a culture of children in the back seat of a road trip. After church today, I'm getting in my car by myself and driving home. I can't tell you how excited I am. Every parent will tell you that to get in a car by yourself brings so much joy. I have four young boys, and I love them very much. And I love road trips with them. I love the time together. We make a lot of memories. But blessed be the name of the Lord for the DVD player. 
Now, I know you older folks want to say, oh, in you know, my days, we drove across the country with all the fancy technology, and we didn't have to entertain our kids. Yeah, but you know, in your day, there were zero regulations. There was like a playground in the back, and they just rolled around and did whatever they wanted. <laughs> it's like a mobile jungle gym back there. Now, I get arrested if I like, don't strap them into a straitjacket harness. So forgive me if I have to use the DVD player. I'm sorry. I'm a bad parent, I guess. Anyway, you, you know there's nothing more frustrating to a child than a road trip, especially when the destination is something that they are really excited for. And this frustration is expressed in a simple question spoken ad nauseum by every child on every road trip. Are we there yet? I don't know where kids learn that phrase, but all of them know it and all of them say it. And it's an interesting question, isn't it? The answer is never yes. And surely they know this. I mean, we're, if we're still driving, then no, we are not there yet. But as parents, we know that they aren't looking for an answer as much as they're expressing, they're expressing their frustration that we are not there yet because they want so badly to be there. Are we there yet isn't really a question. It's an expression. It's a longing. It's a frustration. It's an eagerness. And this is a good way to think about the Bible story. Yes, the Bible is a story of promise, but it is also a story of waiting for the arrival of these promises. God makes promises... And then God's people begin to wait. And we wait, and we wait, and we wait. And as difficult as the difficult journey carries on, the question that echoes throughout the centuries is that haunting creed of the Psalms, How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? Not so much because we need or expect an answer from our God, but as a cry of frustration, of eagerness, of longing. How long, O Lord? I want us to lean into that longing from this. Uh, I want us to lean into that longing this morning on a big picture scale. I have chosen three passages, three parts of one verse uh, from the beginning, middle, and end of the journey that speak of the curse, which is what we want to be gone, right? And so this is what we will see. We're going to see the beginning of the wait in Genesis, the answer to the wait in Galatians, and then the end of the wait in Revelation. Let's start with the beginning of the waiting. Let me remind us where we are in Genesis 3. You, many of you know this, but uh, just to make sure humanity is in its uh, first moments of sinfulness, creation is in its first moments of the fall. But in verse 15, as, as you probably know, uh, famously God promises that a seed of the woman would, would, would crush evil underfoot. It is his first promise of a redeemer, his first promise of the Lord Jesus. That's the good news. The difficult news is that he doesn't tell them when it will happen. In fact, he promises that there will be a long and painful journey as they await the fulfillment of his promise. And that comes to us in verse 17, as I already read. So there's going to come a redeemer, and you're going to have to wait. Until then, verse 17, cursed is the ground because of you. Because of what you have done, Adam, 
Creation is now a cursed creation. And then he describes what life will be like in this cursed world. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. The imagery is of a creation filled with pain and discomfort. Toil and hardship. And this is indeed the world as we know it. And then God pronounces the ultimate price of the curse. You will suffer till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Ultimately, the curse demands our death. So we suffer, and then we die. This is the plot of every story beneath the curse. But what we need to understand is that God's curse over creation is not aimlessly vindictive. You know, pain is actually a mercy. It's not pleasant, but it is merciful. Pain serves as a symptom of a deeper problem. This is why so many of our cancers are so deadly, because they don't have the symptoms of pain until it's too late. You want the pain. You want to know something's wrong. Pain will not allow us to go on ignoring the deeper problem. It is a relentless reminder that something is off. And ultimately, if you do not ignore the pain or numb the pain, the pain will drive you to the cure. And that is how to think of God's curse. God's decree is that as long as sin is in this world, this world is going to hurt. If there were no pain then this sin-sick world would just carry on undaunted in its rebellion and shame. But instead, God mercifully lets the world hurt. So that we will recognize this great disease called sin, and so that we would eagerly long for the cure to the disease. And so in this way, the curse initiates a weight. The pain of the curse brings about a holy unrest a discontentment with the way things are, a longing for a new story, and a cry for a better world. And so, so from some Genesis 3, creation begins to wait. And as you read the Old Testament, what you will find is the brutality of the curse in graphic detail. It's tough to read, isn't it? Tragedy, sorrow, and a whole lot of death. But accompanying the curse throughout the entirety of the Old Testament is an equal measure of promise. And so they wait. Wait upon the Lord. This is the refrain of the Old Testament. God will not abandon His world. God will answer our cry for deliverance. God will respond to the waiting with His coming. So let's pick up the story there. We have seen the beginning of the wait. Let's now look at the answer to the wait. So after generation upon generation upon generation of waiting into a seemingly random and unexpected moment of time, the heavens open, the world receives its long-awaited answer of the Lord. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. I bring this cursed world a global announcement of great joy. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And suddenly there was... A multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, shalom. Peace. So Genesis 3, cursed is the earth, the birth of Jesus, peace on earth. Heaven's promise is that the advent of Jesus will undo the curse of Genesis. 
And when we look at his life, it would seem that this is true. Everywhere he goes, his presence is a small respite from the curse. Lepers are cleansed, the blind see, the deaf hear, the shameful are accepted, the sinful are forgiven, even the dead are raised. The miracles of Jesus are not random acts of power. He could have demonstrated his power in any way he chose. Instead, they are glimpses into a world without a curse. But that's all it is, though, a glimpse. History has waited for so much more than this. Not just these brief respites from the curse, but the fullness of deliverance from the curse. He has brought shalom into these moments, but God's people have been waiting for shalom throughout all creation. Well, he has come to do just that. Look at our verse in Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. The claim here is that we are redeemed from the Genesis 3 curse because Christ took that curse on our behalf. Cursed is everyone who is hung from a tree. So upon Calvary's tree, the curse was pronounced in its fullness. The curse upon humanity in Genesis 3 landed in its fullness upon the Savior. Remember the curse is actually just the painful consequences of sin. And so because the cross cures the actual disease of sin, it also has become the instrument that delivers us from the consequences of sin. The death of Jesus forgives sin and therefore removes the cursed symptoms of sin. The Savior on this cross is the long-awaited answer to the oft-repeated question, How long, O Lord? When God's people cry out, How long, O Lord? Heaven's answer is, Until my son hangs from a tree. Christ redeems us from the curse by becoming accursed for us. So then, why do we still feel the curse? Because the story is not over yet. In one sense, the wait is over. But in another sense, the wait has just begun. A new wait. A wait for the fullness of what Jesus has done. Perhaps a better way of saying that is what um, the Bible speaks of. And, and if, you've, if you've sat under teaching at this church, you're familiar with this language. We call it the already not yet tension of Scripture. If we, it, 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 it speaks of it like this. We have been forgiven of our sins, and yet we await the complete freedom from our sins. We have been set free from the dominion of darkness, and yet we await the final destruction of the dominion of darkness. We have been adopted as sons and daughters, and yet we wait for our inheritance as adopted sons and daughters. We have been born again into new life, and yet we await our full, final, and eternal resurrection into eternal life. We have been indwelt by the presence of God, and yet we await the immediate presence of God. In other words, so many things are now true for us in the gospel, and now we wait to experience these things in their fullness. We wait to experience in full what we have known in part. And so in this way, we have been redeemed from the curse, and now we wait, like our ancestors before us, we wait for the full and final freedom from the curse of Genesis 3. Let's go there. 
Let's now move forward to Revelation and the end of our waiting. Revelation 22, 3. The sentence that creation has been longing to hear since the fall. No longer will there be anything accursed. The wait is over. In a world where all we know is the curse, it is so hard to imagine existence where nothing is accursed. But try. I want you to try this morning. Let your, let your longings run wild today. Imagine yourself as someone that Jesus comes across in the Gospels. And ask yourself this question, what would he undo? Would it be your disease? Would it be your bitterness and anger? Would it be your depression? Would it be your loneliness? Would it be your fears and anxieties? Would it be an addiction that you have to battle every day against? Would it be your broken sexuality? Would it be the lingering effects of trauma or abuse that you experienced? Would it be the funeral of a loved one that haunts you every day? If you were to encounter Jesus, what would come untrue? I want you to name it specifically, and I want you to indulge the dream that that specific curse will come undone. Listen, I know how this works, okay? I've been in ministry long enough to know how this works. I know that we fear to vulnerably expose our hearts to the plausibility of all things new. Because life has forged cynics of us all. Yes, doctrinally we say we believe it's true, but inside we fear it's just too good to be true. But I want to give you that allowance this morning to just let your hearts go. Indulge hope. Feast on promise. Let your longings run wild of how good it could be, knowing with certainty that whatever you imagine, it is sure to exceed. And then, expand your imaginations out to a global scale. Imagine a world where nothing goes wrong. Every time you say in this life, that shouldn't be. Everything from a pandemic to a stub toe. To orphans in this world or weeds in your yard. Every single that shouldn't be will not be. You could search the new creation far and wide for something gone wrong and it will never be found. Just like in our world, it seems that at times we search this world for anything good and we can't find it. Creation's liberation from its bondage to the curse set free to shine in all of its beauty, splendor, and majesty. Groaning will give way to rejoicing as the weight gives way to promise. Now that's the good news. That's the promise. The difficult news is we're not there yet. I'm sorry. I wish we were. There's more waiting to be done. The application of such amazing promise is to wait upon the Lord a little longer. So much of what it means to trust in God is learning to wait upon God. And this is so hard for us. Again, so much of our life is an attempt 
to subvert the weight. Meaning, we numb out the weight with endless distractions, just filling our lives with so much triviality that we forget that we are actually within a story that is heading somewhere. We undermine the weight by lowering our expectations of the promise. In other words, we turn our visions of heaven into the American dream so that fulfillment becomes something that we can self-produce, something we, can, we don't have to wait for, we can have now. We protest the weight by lingering anger, frustrations, impatience, discontentment, which erupt when things inevitably don't go our way. We give up on the weight through despondency and pessimism and self-pity. There is no hope. What's the use? All of this is too good to be true, or at least it's too good to be true for me, right? That's how we work. (laughs) And so you just give up on the weight. We must resist the ever-present temptation to escape the weight and actually embrace it. Perhaps even consider that the weight is good for you. There's a reason why God makes us wait. There has to be, right? He's sovereign. I wonder if the weight is supposed to do something to us. Perhaps the weight is a tool of his sanctification. I wonder if the weight is intended to train us in the ways of dependency. I wonder if the weight is intended to give us that elusive virtue that we struggle to find this thing called humility. I wonder if the weight is intended to convince us that we are not in control, that providence does not follow our agenda. Perhaps the weight is teaching us the foolishness of that original temptation that cursed this world in the first place, that insane notion that we can be our own God. Perhaps the weight is showing us we're not God. Perhaps the weight is teaching us to be human again. Brothers and sisters, the weight is actually good for you. It's hard, but it's good for you. So train yourselves in the ways of waiting. But as we wait, we do so knowing that our wait is not in vain. What we see throughout Scripture is that nobody has ever waited upon the Lord without the Lord answering. It's never happened in Scripture. Promise, fulfillment. Promise, fulfillment. Promise, fulfillment. All showing us that his ultimate promise will be met by ultimate fulfillment. We are going to get there. You know, when a child repeatedly asks, are we there yet? This does not just reveal their impatience with the journey, but also confidence in the journey. A child never says, are we going to get there? A child always says, are we there yet? There's never a doubt that they won't get there. They may struggle in their waiting, but the thought never crosses their mind that they've been lied to, that dad doesn't have the ability to get them there, that there is no end to the journey or anything like that. Are we there yet? It is both a cry of longing and a cry of certainty. So Genesis, cursed is the creation. Gospel, Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming cursed for us. Revelation, no longer will there be a curse. Are we there yet? The answer is no. In light of our conference, what I want you to know here is that the no longer will there be anything accursed is not just our comfort, it's our commission. 
all things new is not just a promise we hold to, it's something we're trying to make a reality. We labor as those who know all things will be new, knowing that Jesus will take our labors and make all things new. But are we there yet? The answer is no. There is more waiting to be done. There is more work to be done. But as we wait, we wait as those confident that we will arrive. Confident that our Father will get us there and all of creation there to that blessed destination of no longer will there be anything accursed. Let me pray for us. Lord, it is so hard to hold a promise. It is so hard to wait. It is so hard to walk by faith and not by sight. By sight, we see a world falling apart. By sight, we see our small little efforts to stand for Jesus and, and fight for justice and love mercy. We see these efforts as vanity and not producing the results we want. But Lord, we don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. And faith tells us that you are coming, that you will make all things new. And when the curse is lifted and when all things are new, all of these labors that we have fought, assumed are in vain, they will be made known. And eternity will tell the story of a people who waited upon the Lord and were glad to wait. Thank you for promise. Thank you that you are risen from the dead as a guarantee that one day all of creation will be risen from the dead. Leave us, Lord, in that assurance we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.